Hey, everybody. This is the Steg Drew Show, and I'm your host, Drew Stegmeyer. This show is new, evolving, and finding itself. We don't yet know what it will turn out to be. And that's exciting. I believe the world has a current civility deficit. And with this endeavor, I'll be exploring tough and taboo topics with compassion and civility so you can do the same with your friends, family, and coworkers. Oz Chen is my friend and one of the smartest, I hesitate to say the smartest because I don't want to rank order my friends, but people I know in terms of metacognition, which is just a fancy way of saying thinking about thinking. In this episode, we dive into mental models, cognitive biases, Oz's projects from blogging to a podcast he made called Hippie Critical to his blogging history, which we co-discovered has been two decades now on the internet. It is wide-ranging, and if you're a curious person who wants to better themselves by sharpening the way they approach reasoning, logic, and thinking, this one is one that you'll like. Peace. This episode is sponsored by The Crypto Curator. You can go to thecryptocurator.com. It is a news curation site providing the best coverage of articles, blogs, podcasts, and videos from crypto industry thought leaders. Again, that is The Crypto Curator. And save time. You don't have to search around the web. Paul McNeil, past guest on the podcast, curates everything for you. Go check out thecryptocurator.com. Oz, what is up, my man? Hey, Drew. How you doing? <laughs> doing, doing well, doing well, man. Um, so to kick things off, why don't you tell folks about yourself? I have a, a little bio that I'm going to use, but I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Sure. So I'm Oz Jen, and Oz is short for Osborne, but... I rebranded myself after college because Oz is cooler and more minimalist. And I live in Los Angeles. Uh, this is home for me. And I love talking about mental models and finance and crypto. Uh, I work in technology. And uh, my dream someday is to just make a, make a living exploring my curiosity and writing and sharing that with others. So that's very much uh, what makes me feel alive and why podcasts like this are so fun for me to engage with. Awesome. So I already have a little Easter egg. Your nickname came after college and you gave it to yourself. Is that right? Yeah. So it was two things. One is um, I, I never minded Osborne and everyone from middle school, high school and on, they, they always had all these nicknames like Ozzy, sometimes they would spell it O-S-S-Y, O-Z, mm-hmm. I-E, whatever, right? And um, I was really getting into blogging and I, I made sure to get OsborneChen.com, which is like my very first domain name, I think. Okay. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if Oz Chen is taken. I was like, oh, it's not, you know? And um, at that time I was entering the workforce, you know, I was 22, going to workforce. And I found that a lot of people had an issue with 
mispronouncing either Osborne for some reason or just thinking that's my last name. And it's oh. it is very strange because I would assume most people would see Chen and see that as my last name. But I think so many people just have like this cognitive dissonance. They just associate Osborne with being a last name that like so many times I would get like Chen Oz, Chen Osborne. It's like, no, it's written wow. Osborne Chen. <laughs> yeah huh so you said okay hard fork i'm going with oz and and that was it yeah okay so when did you start blogging do you remember this platform called zynga way back in the day zynga i think zynga farmville zynga uh, no, that's a gaming company. There is a uh, micro, basically a blogging company called uh, XANGA. It might even be semi-alive or defunct today. I have but no it's idea. This blogging platform that, uh, you know, it was fun. Uh, I could be emo on it. You know, it was around when I was like 13 and in middle school when it was like really popular. And if you liked someone's post, you could give them... Uh, instead of a like, they had, they called it e-props. So I was, before people were mm. dying for likes, I was, I was finding validation through e-props. <laughs> <laughs> e-props, man, it's, it's weird. Cause uh, I think of old school internet as being much smaller than it is today, which I think is true, but I remember things like geocities.com and AIM, which was, I guess, AOL Instant Messenger. And I yeah. never had that as a kid, but they, you know, this was before the days of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. And I never heard of Zanga. Zanga, yeah. Zanga, man. One of the earlier blogging platforms and uh, you could do kind of kitschy things with it, like have your own backgrounds. And then once the page mm -hmm. loads, you have like a five megabyte upload limit for a song. If you want to just like load the page and just like start playing a song. So it, it was kind of in a way, a precursor to MySpace. And I kind of just skipped MySpace entirely. It was like Zynga for me, My, MySpace was coming up and I was like, this is too messy. And mm -hmm. then it just like went straight to Facebook for me. Okay. So do you still have some of your Zanga archives? You know, I'm sure if I like really try to dig around for it, I might be able to find it. Um, mm -hmm. I think I tried like a year ago and I couldn't find it. Okay. Darn. I was thinking like, oh man, this is the, the Oz Chen NFTs, right? This is the OG Oz. <laughs> yeah. Um, NFTs. Okay. That's, that's, Better reason to just like go and be a hoarder these days. Oh God, a, a digital go back hoarder. In time and make yeah. an NFT out of everything. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, so how? So that would, if I understand right, math wise, that would put you at blogging for almost two decades. Does does that check out? That's give or take. Dang, that's crazy. Yeah, almost two decades. And you know, I, I wish I had the foresight of thinking of like writing on the internet as leverage, which it totally is, but it wasn't like a consistent thing, right? It was oh. blogging to express myself as an emo kid, um, mostly from like, you know, 13 on up through high school. 
Mm-hmm. By the end of high school, I had um, uh, found out a little bit about affiliate marketing. So I was starting to like mess with some of that stuff. Okay. Uh, and then in college, I feel like college is actually when I started blogging for fun, where I would blog about the experiences that I was having and how college was going, some some uh, personal development advice from a from a twenty year old. <laughs> I was really into that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm still really into giving unwarranted advice. But I, I think, I think you <laughs> cage it well, right? I think you say, "Hey, this is advice. Take it or leave it." Rather than this is the way, and if you don't follow this path, you are wrong. Um, it was it was a long way to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same, same here. I'm, I'm still struggling with that. Um, I used to sometimes get mad at my meditate at my, at my meditator, Jesus. I used to get mad at my brother because he doesn't meditate. And then one day I had this realization of like, no, Drew, you shouldn't be mad at him because he doesn't meditate. You meditate to deal with people who don't. Right. <laughs> Everything's easy if we're all a bunch of meditators hanging out kumbaya style, right? The rubber meets the road when you meet someone who yeah. believes something differently from you, right? It's, it's real easy to practice NVC when you're in an NVC practice group because everyone gets it. Um, that reminds me of that wonderful phrase, like, if you think you're enlightened, then just spend a weekend with your family. Yeah. Oh, I've heard it as week. From Ram Dass, but it could oh, be weekend. Well, I mean, week weekend is funny. Weekend is funny. Um, so two decades, man. I didn't notice that anywhere. Like, I did some background, right? And we know each other, but I didn't come across anything on your site or online that said I've been blogging for two decades. That's probably for a good reason because first, I didn't before this conversation i didn't realize it was that long i guess i started blogging but when you when you say that you've been doing something for 20 years i think it gives people the impression that you've been doing it continuously and now you're a master and i definitely do not want to give people that impression because i'm still very much like i'm figuring things out i'm Uh just experimenting and uh if i make a typo then then um don't kill me (laughs) because i've been blogging. okay okay I, I would say for listeners, I think Oz is humble and sandbagging a bit here, but um, I think you have a very colloquial style that's easy to understand. And um, so I guess now blogging wise, how do you see yourself as a blogger or writer? You know, you could say in a personal sense, in a for fun sense, in a professional sense, all, all of the above. Yeah, I think this, uh, so I'm going to manufacture a situation to then give unwarranted advice. <laughs> so um, uh, I was recently having this conversation with a friend who wanted to start a niche, like uh, who was wondering about a niche, like, oh, what should I write? Should I write about my professional life? Should I like, but I really want to talk about cooking. And I was sharing with her my experiences, which is like, I'm in a spot right now where I am talking about the intersection of psychology and money, and I didn't land on that purely by accident, but even still right now, 
I am still dealing with thoughts like, oh, is this like the right niche? Should I go deeper? Should I maybe like change it up? And um, what really helped me um, like through this process and still now is to really like one, just like really follow my curiosity and, mm -hmm. and try to bifurcate between two extremes. And one is, okay, if I don't know what to write about, I'll either write something that I know will be useful regardless of niche. It might be like how to clean the gunk out of my toes or, right, right. or um, I just wrote a, a guide to using yearn.finance or I write something from the heart that I just want to do a rant about or I feel very passionate and it just, and it just flows. So maybe it's just something that I experienced that I really needed to speak about. And okay, so one post is coming to mind for me. Would you say any of your writing is both of those? Like pragmatic and stream of consciousness or, or brain dump? I think for a good season, I was writing a lot of these type of like uh, more formalized guides that were around basically the topic of personal development. So uh, I wrote one or two articles on how to overcome imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. that's, that's less, it, it, it's half rant and half like, oh, I thought about this. Here's some like, here's a framework of how I try to deal with okay. that. So the, uh, the dating article about going Dutch, right? Or, or splitting it. Going Dutch is when the girl pays, right? I think. Um, oh, yeah. It's basically the same concept I talk about in this article called like asking my days to split the bill. Yes. So that one. Okay. I'm curious because I thought of that as both, right? I thought of that as like, man, I'm going on all these dates and it's breaking the bank which ironically is very closely related to psychology of money, which you have a lot of posts about. And yeah. Hey, this is straight up pragmatism. Like if you're in online dating, you are going to spend money on dates. And if you're a guy and just assume you're going to pay for all of them, that can add up really quickly. Yeah. So uh, I'll dive into this story and maybe you could relate. It's, um, it's an interesting phenomenon where I think I just want to feel appreciated and acknowledged. And so when I don't feel that on a date, then I, I don't feel good. So for example, I've been on several dates where I kind of realized like in the middle of the date, oh, she's using me for dinner. Like she has no interest in me. Just like barely making conversation, <laughs> shoving food in her mouth. And, and, and I, I felt used, right? And, yeah. and, the, and, and that turns me off from wanting to spend money or, or time and resource on that type of person. But when I'm with someone who is like an appreciative, generous heart, and like, I want to spend more on them, you know, it's yeah. the opposite effect. It's like, oh yeah, you, you get me and you're, you're just not using me for me. And, and I feel like I can relax around you versus like I'm being taken advantage of. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think definitely there's um, online dating still has this stigma. So I don't think there's as many conversations about it as there should be. I think there's a ton of articles about online dating generally in the zeitgeist, but I don't see a lot of them about, I guess I'd call it burnout for lack of a better term. Like, hey, 
you are wanting some connection and you're committed to putting in the reps, so to speak, not in terms of pure pickup artistry, but like, Hey, I want to meet and connect with other people. And I'm going to use online dating as a tool for that. And then maybe there's this population out there that recognize that desire in others. And they're like, dinner time, baby. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and they're just lining up free dinners left and right. I mean, I think that's one camp, so to speak. And then there's another camp. Uh, there's many strategies, right? These are all, these are all methods to find a mate, right? Which has infinite variety, but I think others are um, basically, I would say men that have some success in online dating, just systematizing it or productizing it. And uh, I think Aziz Ansari talks about this in modern romance. Like there's some guy he knows who has a particular bar and he always takes first dates from online dating to this particular bar and gets the same drink because it's cheap, but he doesn't look cheap by going there. And um, <laughs> it's so formulaic that in some sense, it feels kind of gross for lack of a better word, like, like this, uh, I don't know, this, this formulaic thing. But the flip side is, hey, I just bought three people free dinner and never heard from them ever again. Like, how, how could you not come up with a system? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it it, it I think you know how my feelings about it have evolved over time is to really think more about. It sounds kind of trite values and what I'm looking for out of dating. So I I, I do think having like a system if someone's uh. Uh, if, if I'm going to be dating a lot, right. And I'm going to mm hop -hmm. back into an online dating pool. I right. haven't been in like three years. Okay. Um, uh, if I wanted to do that, sure. It helps to have a system so that, you know, you, you control your costs. It's really about the quality time anyway. It's really like trying to focus on like, you know, brokering that connection. But mm -hmm. um, I, I think the broader goal is I relate it to like, you know, when you, um, want to like talk to people about like productivity, a lot of times people would be like, oh, what tool do you use? What software do you use? And it's like, well, <laughs> the software and the tool can help you, but it's more about like what your goal is, like what, what you want to get done. And, right. and I think to that effect, to make a really weird parallel back to dating, it is like, well, I want to find um, uh, not someone who's perfect, but someone who's right for me. So that involves mm. me getting to know my own core needs and boundaries really well. Right. So that over time, like my true self is just shining through and that I am making no excuses for myself or people who don't belong in the sphere. Right. Like I used to take girls out on dates who I knew that I wouldn't be attracted to them anyway. And it's like, why did I do that? Like, uh, I'm going to ask like, you, <laughs> why did you do that? That's, that seems crazy. Yeah, I think um, loneliness <laughs> is one. Um, another one okay. is just like this, like, oh, getting in the reps. Oh, if I get in more dates, then maybe I will, um, you know, get better at dating. And, and I'm sure that mm -hmm. all those experiences like counted for something where uh, I learned more about myself through the process. But I think um, 
I've had enough dating experiences at this point to know, okay, I, I feel like I have a clear sense of what my core needs are. And if I were to use Tinder again, uh, uh, it would be a very different approach compared to the 25 year old me. So what has changed over that time? Really getting to know my needs, um, like, like super sharp. So uh, what, one of those things is the ability to, the freedom to say almost anything to that person. And that person feels the same way towards me. And of mm-hmm. course, there's a boundary of like, there's respect where like, you know, we shouldn't take that. But it's, it's more like a, about this like freedom of conversation and I feel like, um, you know, I've been able to experience that with friends. I've been able to experience that with people like you, you know, like great conversationalists and Aww. actors, right? <laughs> and, and I realize that's so important for me because what that gives to me is this feeling of like closeness and friendship. I find that yeah. for me, if I find myself like withholding for like too long or a bit hesitant about like what I want to say, that's never a good sign. And I didn't really know that earlier on because I think earlier on, I was just more so like trying to fit in, trying to please other people. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. There's um, this idea I came up with called the vulnerability escalator. And so I like the sound of that. To, to summarize it a little bit, um, you basically get increasing vulnerability by... And, and I don't know if I'm going to fuck up the metaphor, but by being vulnerable, we encourage others to also be vulnerable. Right. And um, yeah, I'm, mess- I'm messing up my own metaphor. I'm like, ah, I came up with something clever and I'm botching it. But basically, if you want other people to be vulnerable, you need to be vulnerable yourself. And if you're being increasingly more vulnerable and others are not, it's not going to work, right? In some sense, the escalator breaks, right? But when an escalator breaks, it's just a set of stairs. It's not like you're dead. It's just kind of like, oh, this dynamic thing that was moving isn't moving, right? You know, if you're on an escalator and you personally don't move, the escalator is still moving, right? If you're on a set of stairs and you stop, it stops, right? So with the vulnerability escalator, if it breaks, right, then you're like, oh, shit, okay, um, guess I'm on my own here, right? And, and it's up to you to either be more vulnerable, stand there and do nothing, or backtrack. And in my experience, I suspect this is, a, this is the same for you, but you say something vulnerable, and then maybe it lands, maybe it doesn't land, but if that level of vulnerability, which is kind of arbitrary and nebulous anyway, isn't matched, you can feel it, right? You can kind of feel when someone is, is holding back. Then um, I usually get into this mode of like, well, it's not a one-way street. <laughs> like I, if, if I'm just going to be here being vulnerable and you're going to be like a dead fish, then peace, <laughs> I'm, I'm out, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm out. And, and at the same time, yeah. there's, 
this weird phenomenon where people will tell strangers these crazy things because I think there's a psychological safety in knowing that you won't see a person again. Like you get in an elevator and some guy gets in there with you and he's like, Oh, I'm banging my secretary. And then it's like, ding floor seven. And he just gets off and you never see him again. And you're sitting there like, why did you yeah. tell me this? <laughs> like, like, I don't know you. Why did you <laughs> tell this me actually this? Happened to you in real life? <laughs> Not that particular one, but many cases where a stranger will tell me something incredibly profound and random. And I have no idea why this has happened to me many, many, many times. This, this reminds me of the same ph phenomena when I travel and when, when I travel and meet strangers, it's this sense that I could share more with them than even with some of my friends or some of my family um, mm. or that I could, I could in a very short amount of time share more of myself. And I think part of that is just like lack of risk. They, like this person who I met in Madrid, Spain was on the same train as me. And, you know, we're kind of yeah. like, what are they going to do with this information? Right. Right. So I, I feel like my own um, understanding of that is that it's less risk and less consequences uh, like telling a stranger mm -hmm. who doesn't have like a lot of impact on my life uh, to share that with them. Yeah. But um, part of the hard work is like integrating that in everyday life, which is like, how can I be vulnerable and, you know, with the people closest to me um, and also be responsible for the consequences that may come out of my vulnerability that may come out of my sharing. Cause I might say something they don't like. And, you know, <laughs> with, with a stranger, it's easy to be like, all right, peace. Like, I don't know you anyway. Versus <laughs> like, I'm going to be fucking talking to Drew next week. And, <laughs> you know, we right. have a continuity. Right. So how do you manage that? I, I think going back to like, uh, like values, it's, it, I think it is a, a great core need to like, for, of mine to surround myself with people who I could just drop in on conversations like that. So mm, yeah. I think it's like this flexibility, this like mental flexibility and this, um, I guess it takes a certain amount of like open-mindedness in yeah. the people that I'm with that um, I know that I'm safe to do that. Um, and, and that changes person by person. Like with my mom, I have different conversations versus like, you know, with people yeah. uh, through the on deck community or through the spiritual community. Yes. Yeah, dude, that, that makes perfect sense. I, um, I didn't have a framing for that until one of my friends told me. And he said something along the lines of, Drew, it sounds like pretty much all your relationships are A to B relationships, where I guess I would frame them as um, not necessarily high frequency, but high depth. And um, you could say there's A to B, and then maybe A to C or A to D or A to F, which basically involve levels of uh, maybe A to F is like, how is the weather? Oh, the weather is good. Yes, we are in the same weather. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, please shoot me in the head now. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. it's just, uh, I hate those kinds of conversations because it's, uh, 
it's a formality and I joke like, oh, I'm a submariner. I prefer the depths over the surface. And at the same time, not everyone else is a submariner, right? Some people might even be kite surfers where they're like barely trying to touch the surface, right? And sometimes they go up in the air. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it's context specific. Um, I, I do think it's it's context specific and um i'm not remembering anymore why we got on that tangent <laughs> so can well, you could you wrestle I, me I, for I, a second I, I feel i feel like this actually relates to the theme of your podcast really well which is like um can we have civil conversation about almost anything and with oh, who yes. can we have that type of conversation i had a really illuminating conversation with my uh group of friends from back in high school. Mm -hmm. um, I never know how to say that phrase because I don't want to tell people like, oh, I have friends who are like high school age. I'm talking about like friends who I went to high school with. <laughs> and are you not <laughs> friends with them now? No, no, I am. Like, like so what, we had a recent uh, gathering and we, uh -huh. we chatted. And um, I didn't know this about some of the personas in my group. And um, it was a discussion of, like my personality type is that I like to dig. And mm. if I don't understand something, it's, it's like, I'm a kid. I'm like, why? Or what's your motivation? Or like, like, well, why did you do that? Or, and many variants of that. And that uh -huh. comes very naturally to me. And with other people that comes naturally to, mm -hmm. we have like great conversations. We could just vibe. Right. And there's a totally different mental model that I didn't expect from one of my friends. Um, you won't expect it because she's actually very um, outwardly, like very like kind of outspoken and talkative. Mm -hmm. But um, her perspective is like, you know, sometimes I just haven't thought of something and I'm like done talking about it. And it stresses me out to be asked like, why? So <laughs> it's, it's this like funny recursive thing because it would be like, she, she would there would be some topic that's kind of like on the edge for her. And then she yeah. would be like, oh, you know, I don't really want to talk about it. And then like me and my other friend were naturally, oh, like, why do you not want to talk about it? <laughs> and, then, and then she's like, I just don't. I just don't want to talk about it. It's like, right. I haven't done a, a page of analysis about why I don't want to talk about it. I just don't want to talk about it. Right. And, right. and, and that frustrates me and my other friends to no end because we're like, but why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so so let's yeah. let's dig into that a bit. Have patience because... and kindness for, for that for that yeah. um, conversation as well. Yeah, I think uh, I I don't know. I identify as curious, and um, people often don't even know their own motivations, and why questions in relationship can come off as accusatory. So some good workarounds are asking what questions and how questions, right? Like, how does this serve you, right? Or what would you like to talk about? Or, you know, did something happen? Or uh, basically what questions, how questions, just framing the inquiry in that way often gets you the why because often the why is simply a means to an end, right? It's like, well, why are you going to the grocery store? Um, I don't know. It's like, well, what are you getting at the grocery store? 
Oh, I'm getting eggs, flour, and sugar because I'm making a cake for my friend's birthday. It's like, oh, so you're going to a friend's birthday. Yeah, it's a birthday party. I'm excited. She's turning 21, (laughs) right? And they'll get to the why by answering your what question, which is... uh, I'm I'm totally there with you right now. Um, uh, I I recently read something around this topic uh and they said that when you ask someone why, it has a higher chance of putting them on the defensive because asking why might occur to them as um, investigator, like, like a investigative, I cannot say this word, like an investigation or like yeah. interrogation. Yeah. Um, uh, or it might come off as judgy. Um, and then the same article writer was saying that exactly what you're saying. There's other yep. different ways yep. of approaching a conversation that occurs less as a confrontation and it's like a what or a how instead and now i'm kind of like building up to uh, a totally untested theory i wonder like like what are the roots of this because i feel like with the people i could just drop right in in conversation with mm-hmm. is is the why people like we could ask each other why all day we yeah. could drop in yeah and um i think the what and how people are uh, need a little bit more of an on-ramp where Mm -hmm. they're fine with asking these why questions, but they don't want to be interrogated from the get-go. Yeah. Um, And I'm really curious. I was just imagining like kids, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if this comes from an annoying little kid asking their parents why all day. And depending on their parents' response, if they're being punished by it, maybe that kind of gets iterated over time where they develop a relationship to a set of questions. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask why because I'm annoying the hell out of my mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe you have another kid who's, whose parents are like always welcoming that and like want to stoke that curiosity and imagination. Yeah. So you get all these kids who are asking why all day. Totally, totally. Adults. In, uh, I guess it was episode three, talking to Jamie, uh, we talked about this idea of, I don't know. And how that's such a powerful phrase, because if you overuse it, people probably won't talk to you because you just seem like a clueless idiot, right? It's like, you got to give me some information. But if you never use it, you're also probably lying, right? Because no one can know everything about everything. There's got to be stuff you just don't know. And so I think there's, there's a balance. I, I also think... Um, what you mentioned about kids. Yeah. I I think there's definitely some truth to that. I mean, let's say a parent is really um, impatient for lack of a better word and just says, don't ask that because it's rude. And the kid just gets horribly punished. So at a young age, they integrate this idea of, okay, never ask why questions because it's rude. So when other people ask them why they're like, you're being rude. Yeah. Rude. Right. (laughs) Um, And I suspect, I don't know if this is true for you, but I, I, would, I would say it probably is. Um, I connect with people over learning. And perhaps my favorite type of connection is shared learning, right? This ping, it's probably why I even have a podcast, right? It's, it's this ping pong back shared and forth. Learning. Yes. yes. And I think, let's say if, if learning is my kink, right? and learning is your kink also, then 
when we ask these why questions, we're exploring that. Whereas someone else might think it is an attack on them. Like I'm questioning you as a person versus. Yeah. I think he just genuinely wants to know because I also just genuinely want to know, Hmm, let's go exploring versus like, Oh shit. He doesn't trust me. He thinks I'm dumb. I must prove I'm not dumb or, or some other narrative that, is completely made up just based on the question why and tone mm. tone makes a huge difference like why did you do that versus hey i'm curious why are you doing that mm. right still kind of the same question but totally different questions yeah it, it makes a huge difference and i think on one hand it's really instructive to kind of have this spectrum in mind when I'm meeting new people, because I appreciate why some people <laughs> might not want to get the why questions and they might just need more of a warm up. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the same time, I really know who my people are. Like I know, oh, yeah. I know who I could just drop into and, yes. and have a conversation with. Yes. Yeah. That, that's totally right. Cause uh, I have a friend and we'll share, we'll share a freestyle rap sometimes. And dude, they can be dark. <laughs> like the, the, some of these can be incredibly dark. And I hesitate to share them with others because for me, this it's needs just to be a podcast episode, just a full on <laughs> dark freestyle rap. Oh God. Throwing down the oh conflict. man. I'm not um, volunteering myself. I'm not a rapper, but you, my man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they can, uh, they can be pretty, pretty dark. And, um, we both had the awareness, like uh, at one point we, we got into it and I was like, man, so many of my raps are just horribly misogynistic. And I was like, well, cause I think what I'm doing is looking at what I'm seeing and emulating it. Right. <laughs> Much of the rap music that I'm seeing that is popular is horribly misogynistic. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, but I also appreciate the art form, right? It takes talent to make things rhyme. It's a form of poetry over beats. And I was like, oh my God, this is just coming as a form of emulation. It, it's, it's not like I regularly speak this way because when it manifests in the form of freestyle rap, dude, I don't talk like that. <laughs> I don't talk like that. I don't write like that. I don't write emails like that. But then part of me thinks, oh, and it is supposed to be like this, um, which it's is completely the power made of up. culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Culture is repeated behavior because yeah. if the dominant culture is a certain type of rap, people are going to predominantly look to that as the example. And I love Little Dicky, right? Okay. And he's really refreshing because he's like, you know, like a Jewish white boy who like talks about saving money, right? Okay. And he's trying to be gangsta about it. And it's, a, it's hilarious, but that's not the typical like rap style. If you like ask anyone on the street, hey, like, how do you think a rapper dresses and talks like? They're immediately gonna have like an image and persona and archetype pop up into their head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's... That's interesting. So I, I guess as a, a segue a little bit, I feel like almost every time we talk, 
you either introduce me to a new mental model or you ask me about ones that I'm currently like using or excited about. And no one else I know does that. <laughs> um, and I, I think I know another feel honor question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think, I think it's great, man. Um, I, I really think it's great. Well, and I'm curious, like there's probably Farnham streets, the most popular blog that talks about these mental models. And I think they even have a book called the great mental models, but yeah. few people so explicitly say it like that, like, Hey, you know, give me some mental models or what mental models are you using or what mental models are you liking? And what's funny is I think in some sense, it's such a beautiful way of figuring out how someone operates or thinks because we basically use these models and, and shortcuts. And um, so I wanted to ask, what are some of your favorite mental models or ways of thinking, ways of approaching life? That's a great and very broad question. And I think to like further take us onto that segue, I'll just like choose a scenario because I feel like the mental model typically like serves a certain situation or problem. Um, actually, let me retract. I think mental models can be broadly applicable, but just to use an example from like finance, you know, something that I'm writing about. Like one of the things that we talked about is, you know, like what do people get wrong about personal finance or why is it so easy for Americans to get into debt or, you know, mm -hmm. even very smart people, like why do we screw up? And I think some of the helpful mental models, I, I don't even know if this is a mental model, but I'll just say that like, I appreciate behavior like so much more now that I'm older and that I, I work in an industry where we're working with our like user experience and people's behavior. Mm -hmm. where I feel, I know that behavior dictates outcome a lot more than like a fancy financial model or tool. And um, within, like, if it's just like one takeaway to like my younger self about like money and finances, I would tell myself like, hey, just pay more attention to uh, your behaviors and what you want to optimize for and what you don't want to optimize for. And from that area, comes from like so much richness. Like um, I read this book when I was exiting, was when I was graduating college. It's, it's called, I will teach you to be rich. Oh, by, by yeah. By Ramit Sati, right? Yeah. And he introduced this mental model that was amazing to me because he was like, hey, don't worry so much about budgets and penny pinching down to the very last, you know, dollar amount. Mm -hmm. He's like, if you just automate most of your finances and basically like outsource that cognitive load and you just take like a solid like weekend just setting up your bank account, setting up stuff, you don't really need a budget after that. You know, things are kind of taking care of themselves a little bit like automatically and your, your leftover money, um, assuming that you've like, you know, have also saved up an emergency fund or whatever, then you could feel like you could use that more guilt-free versus kind of constantly being in a state of like, I need to save every single damn penny, which isn't like a fun way to live either. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so, so automation, sucks. yeah. Automation and automating away decisions. Uh, I, 
if I could call that a mental model, that's definitely helped me a ton. Yeah. Well, and I guess there's so many, I mean, you could say automating one is a mental model. Uh, you could just say the concept of coming up with rules, right? Just coming up with rules. And then, um, I don't know if I'd call it set it and forget it. Automation and set it and forget it are kind of the same, but a, a way you could think about that is, okay, I can mess around on various investing apps, hunting for the best return, or I can just say, hey, I'm going to put a hundred bucks a week into Bitcoin and leave it alone, right? And maybe every week I'm hunting for the best return, but some weeks I invest a dollar, some weeks I invest a thousand dollars, some weeks I invest nothing, and I might end up with a lot more, I might end up with a lot less than if I had just put in a hundred bucks a week, kind of making it uh, making it idiot proof. So I guess that's a, that's a good segue. Cause I thought, uh, when I was doing prep, I was like, Oh man, I wonder if he considers himself like Ramit. Uh, cause I, I get a kind of Ramit vibe in the sense of, uh, I would say your, your writing style, like no nonsense, straightforward. I think Ramit's a little bit, um, I don't know, deliberately edgy and uh mm. in, in his tone and um i think that's just just his his style and i don't think you have that same edginess um i don't i don't know him personally but to me it feels a little bit like uh i don't Challenge want to say accepted. clickbaity <laughs> um, how to make a thousand dollars in under three hours using right. this one tried and true tip <laughs> well I, I i meant it I know, in a, I know in that's a flattering really. sense yeah, like uh, just when I when I read your stuff, I feel empowered, and um, I'm so happy to hear that. That's not usually the case with a lot of finance stuff. I think most financial advice comes from this place of, "Hello, person, I am going to use lots of big words and jargon so you feel really stupid." And after feeling stupid and confused, I will send you something that says, hi, I know you're confused. If you just give me all your money, I can help you, right? <laughs> and it just removes agency, right? It, it's, it's totally like, um, I, and I guess the, the, I don't know if you know the, the history of the Motley Fool. So my dad worked for the Motley Fool a little bit. And, oh, no um, way. As far as I understand, when they started, it was just kind of uh, educational content, right? Educational materials. And then at some point, I think their audience kept saying, guys, I know you're smart. Just do it for me. Just get me the return. Just pick the stocks. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And as far as I know, that's, that's how they got into that line of business. But I think for some reason, and, and maybe it's because it's, it's more lucrative, a lot of the industry gears towards deliberately befuddling things as a means of confusing people and making them afraid, and then using that as a means to monetize their attention. Whereas your approach is, it feels more genuine, like, hey, this actually can be confusing, 
So I will demystify it for you instead of, hey, this is a mystery. Give me $5 and rub this magic lamp. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think finance, just like a lot of different fields like, uh, like law, medicine, and parts of technology, there is a little bit of this um, high barrier to entry that is sometimes artificially created that then concentrates power in certain groups. Like there, there have been laws that have lobbied against simplifying the tax code, right? And it's like, oh, why would anyone do that? It's like, oh, because maybe they create the tax software and it would make taxes much easier for the average person to do. So I, I actually think maybe that's a, that's a good mental model because now we're so used to um, things should be easy to use. Uh, things should have good user experience. Back in the day, early in technology, uh, users tended to blame themselves when it didn't work. Like, oh, I, I must have messed up. Oh, I don't get the system. But now uh, there's a much higher expectation of like that the brunt is put on the designers to on the teams designing things, which is like, oh, why isn't this easier? Like, mm -hmm. why did you make something so complicated when I could just use Venmo or Cash App? And I think that the same kind of uh, democratization of all the technical things are happening and the internet helps power that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people want, convenience people want things to be easy. So I guess um, if I was understanding correctly, you're saying now there's more pressure on designers to just make stuff simple and easy than there was maybe in the past? Yeah. And competition has a factor in that, you know? Um, mm, yeah. Like, like you, you have a lot of, uh, it basically it's like an experience war. So whoever has an like, experience war, did you make this word up? Yeah, I just made it up, which is like, you know, it's That's great. whoever can deliver the best experience uh, will probably win because at the end of the day, the consumer is not going to care about like your back office operations or whatever. They just care that like, boom, you accomplished this for me better than anyone else. And it was fun. It was delightful. It was fast. And I, th I think uh, for a good reason, like the market leaders that we see, like Airbnb, Coinbase, they've made the experiences of doing those things so much easier. And I'm really curious uh, where this might go in the financial world, because right now, you know, both of us are, you know, curious about crypto mm -hmm. and the whole decentralized finance DeFi space has like so much potential. It's basically like decentralized Wall Street now, where you have like hedge fund like instruments and all these things that like are arcane and hidden from view to the public. Now it's like, hey, you know, it's possible to do all this stuff without a big gatekeeper, without Ivy League suits. Um, however, I myself, I find it really confusing, you know, to, to use this stuff right now. Mm -hmm. And um, where I'm bullish is that I know that the pressure of like the experience war you know, all these different DeFi platforms, if they care to be adopted by the masses, they're going to have to have good experiences. So I am bullish on DeFi in the long run, because if people are making money in it now, and, and there's a lot of value locked into those systems now, 
I can only imagine when it gets much, much easier, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. So, and I, I guess to, to go a little bit more down this road of what otherwise smart people screw up when it comes to personal finance. So where crypto I think ties in there is, and I don't know if you could call this part of the culture war, but there doesn't seem to be people in my life that are ambivalent about crypto. Most people mm. think it's the best thing since sliced bread, or they think this is a scam, <laughs> right? This is a hustle. And I don't see a lot of middle ground. And where I find that fascinating is, uh, I guess it's a bit of a leading question to say that some people are otherwise smart and screwing it up. Um, but why do you think that is right? Why do you think it's kind of like Donald Trump actually in that nobody was ambivalent about Donald Trump, right? You say the word Donald Trump yeah. and you feel something. Everybody has something <laughs> to say about it, right? Crypto is yes. one of those things where pretty much everyone has something to say. They're mm -hmm. not like, Oh, gee, I don't know. <laughs> I, I rarely hear that. Yeah, I, I love this question because there's so many important sub-branches of this question. One direction I'll take it is, um, you know, for someone who uh, has been in crypto for a little bit and like uh, is, is invested, I want, I want the price to go up. Mm -hmm. when, when people have a polarized feeling towards an investment, I now have come to understand that as an opportunity because you have, when you have this fervor, um, you get something like Tesla and how people react to that versus um, a Ford or Toyota. And so when people start thinking of Bitcoin as like just the US dollar and doesn't excite them anymore for the negative or positive, mm -hmm. there's no more upside. It's probably done by then. Look for the next thing. Mm, and okay. and it, it's it's kind of like i have this image of like you know those like i don't know like 80s movies maybe where like two people like really hate each other and they're fighting and then they can't stand each other and then they make out <laughs> there's so much attraction built up right? <laughs> right. uh there there's like a polarization in terms of like in in cryptocurrency where i feel like that's where the upside is, is because there's so much passion for and against it. And that's why I, I feel like it's only going to keep growing. Um, as to why people feel that passion about it, I think it's because the institution of money, which is a religion, is being disrupted. And it's chaos versus order. You know, when all we've known is this version of money, like money, as we know it, the US dollar, if you're American, it's like water. It is what we swim in. It is natural. Right. And then to, to suggest at something else as also money, it really causes uh, some interesting, fun chaos. Dude, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was talking to my buddy Alex about this and... Uh... I think this is actually on episode one, this idea that for, I don't know, much of my life, most of my life, frankly, I was Catholic and I didn't even realize it was an ideology. 
I thought it was base reality, right? So I had a belief oh. and I didn't even know it was a belief, right? And, and I think I, it didn't hit me till this second. What you're saying about money is fiat is not gravity, right? The US dollar is not gravity. The Fed is not gravity. These are constructs, right? These are things we have constructed, but the belief like a religion is so strong that we don't even know it's a belief. We just think it is. Yeah. Yeah. There, and there's so many permutations of like religion. On one hand, it's like just deep dominant culture, mm-hmm. it's habits, it's tradition. Right. And I, I feel like we could find the similar underpinnings of like, you know, some people, if you tell them, you know, maybe you live out in the Midwest and everyone eats like barbecue and you're saying, hey, I'm going to go vegan. People will have something to say about that. And, and mm-hmm. it's almost like your diet becomes like a religion. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think when people's sense of like what their world is gets threatened, mm-hmm. that's where the, the, the chaos uh, comes from. And that's why you have such like polarity around, I guess, anything that's like worth being polarized over like Bitcoin. Right. So... How do you, to use a financial term, how do you hedge against that? Because to me, that seems fragile, right? To me, it seems like in some sense, uh, it's like diversifying a portfolio. It's like a lack of portfolio diversity when it comes to identity-based thought. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You know, like this will be like preaching to the choir, here because like we we have a similar mindset um i really believe in the value of open-mindedness and curiosity and Mm -hmm. like my mental model of that is like imagining my my knowledge as like a surface area and Mm -hmm. this this surface area uh the wider it is the more i'm able to be receptive and catch ideas and so for example, if I wasn't already in, in tech in some fashion, like back in 2016, I wouldn't have been as open to the conversation my roommate at that time was trying to have with me about Ethereum because he was just mm. gushing to me about Ethereum. And I was like, what the heck is this? But I'm like, oh, I'm in tech, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah. And I, I bought into the story and he forever in that one conversation, bless his heart, <laughs> like expanded my surface area where um, like crypto and blockchain and all these things, they, they weren't, they didn't seem as much of a threat as they could be. Um, and I think, you know, imagining this surface area, I think that the, the width and the size of the surface area matters in terms of like just how many concepts that you will uh, not necessarily just accept, but just fuck with, <laughs> just like, okay, um, right, I, 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 right. I, I could play with this idea. I, I, you know, whether I agree or with it or not, I will consider it. And I think the next thing about the surface area is just like how how porous is your surface area? <laughs> um, like, so if, if knowledge, it's like, you know, if it's very porous, that means like knowledge can drip in, and I could let it affect my existing body of knowledge, but if culture, if subcultures that I've belonged to, maybe it's a religion, maybe it's a diet, maybe it's whatever, um, has become so ingrained in me, 
then that part of my surface area is non-porous. It will almost like be reflected and bounce back. It's mm. like, it's like, oh, I'm a carnivore. You say vegan diet, boom, not listening to that. It's just, right. I, I know of it, but it's just going to bounce off my back. Right. Okay. There's, there's a couple of places I want to go with that. So first, this idea of open-mindedness. I like, I like to use this example frequently because I think it's simple and makes sense. Um, nobody likes having a dirty house. People just have different ideas of what dirty means. <laughs> right? So someone would be That's like, great. That's great. oh, my house isn't dirty. And then someone walks in and they're like, this is a trash heap. This is disgusting. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right? And <laughs> when it comes to open-mindedness, I don't know that I know a single person who is like, hi, I'm Bob. I am not open-minded. How are you? <laughs> right. I, I think yeah. most people just like driving, everyone's an above average driver, right? <laughs> That's not possible. Everyone is above average. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think most people would identify as being at least somewhat open-minded. Right. And then when you find their, I don't know, reflection points, right? The points where it doesn't go through the membrane. Um, often they just still claim they're open-minded and say that on that topic, you are wrong, crazy, dumb, insert attack here, <laughs> right? Um, so what do you do? Like, I, and I don't know if you have practices, but what do you do to make sure for lack of a better word, your, your surface area of knowledge remains porous. Like what's, what's your moisturizer for your surface area? <laughs> uh, that, that's perfect. Um, I think that it's, it's honestly a challenge because another, just to throw in another like model in there, it's like, there's stuff that I know that I don't know. And there's just stuff that I don't know that I don't know. Right. Um, you know, that quadrant of like the known yeah. unknowns. Yeah. And so um, I, I think the best way to practice that is to, like you said earlier, like diversify your, your thoughts and your knowledge. And that mm -hmm. could be through books, conversations. It could be like, oh, I know I really lean like liberal. So maybe I should talk to someone from the opposite side. Maybe I should talk mm -hmm. to someone who's a Republican. Right. And, and try to expand my, my knowledge that way. Um, I, I think those are all kind of like, like low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I do think that for many people, there's a practical limit, which is like, well, how wide can my surface area to be? Like, can it get so large that it's unwieldy? And it's just like, I can't pursue every single opportunity out there, intellectual or not. And um, I need some maybe like principles to ground me. So for example, um, there's a million and one like FinTech startups and services out there and like thousands of cryptocurrencies out there, right? So on one hand, I have a principle of being open-minded, which is like, if anyone comes to me, like kind of trying to show something, I'll be like, okay, I'll listen, like mm -hmm. you know, whatever that is. But that might not necessarily mean I have the uh, energy bandwidth or like perceived return on investment mm -hmm. to pursue each and every single one of those things. Right. Um, so I think where it becomes useful for me is like coming back to the top of the conversation about like 
what what can I automate? So if there's ways to buy a basket of something rather than having to choose every single one and not knowing whether I'm choosing the right one or not, mm-hmm. um, I think I always would like to have a little hand in that basket. So that's why even though I'm such a big fan of like certain stocks in crypto, like I think most of my stock portfolio is still in S&P 500 because I know I can't really beat the market. Okay. Like I'm going to try in one bucket, right? but as I see my own numbers, I have not beaten it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're honest with yourself because a lot of people aren't, right? Some people would say, oh, I just haven't had my big break and they just keep lighting money on fire. Um, like fooling themselves, right? Thinking they can beat it. And maybe the answer is they can, but not consistently, right? If you beat it one yeah. year out of 10, I mean, you're pretty much losing. Right. Um, Especially that the last two years, you know, where trading activity went to all time highs, mean, mean stonks is, is a, is a new thing now. And I, I think what is really hard for people behaviorally to deal with is you see stories of people getting rich quick. And most people are thinking, Hey, I'm above average. I deserve this too. Right. Like, like why, why should this kid, Right. sitting in his basement, you know, make a million dollars off mm-hmm. of Dogecoin. Like, mm-hmm. shouldn't, shouldn't I, you know, be privy to that too? Right. And it's so, it's such a hard thing to juggle, which is like this FOMO, but then you ha- also have to keep in mind like survivorship bias because yes. it's usually like the survivors, the winners who get to tell the stories who are going to brag on Reddit, look how much money I made. And you'd never see what's below the ocean, like the huge iceberg of like the majority of people who got totally <laughs> burned. Right. They're right. not going to be coming out of the woodworks. Most of them are not going to be saying how much yeah. money they lost. So I guess from a cultural standpoint, what we could do is, and, and, and this is one thing I, I try to do and it's a crusade I'm on is the, the, I don't know crusade. So related to the, I don't know crusade is the, admitting failure and mistakes crusade right Mm. and so what is failure what is success right i define success because it's this weird vague term that often means something different to you than it does to me than it does to the cat than it does to someone else um i just define it as whatever the outcome you wanted to have happen actually occurred right like oh i wanted outcome a and i had outcome a success right? And anything else would not be success. And I think for some reason, um, because everyone wants to be seen as successful, there's often this weird bias towards not sharing failure. And the paradox is that it's just like the, the idea that people who have good ideas have a ton of bad ones right? Mm. If I have three ideas, I don't have a lot of bad ideas because I only have three total ideas, right? Probably have no good ones. But if I have 10 good ideas, I probably have at least a hundred pretty bad ones. And we just focus on those 10. Like, oh, that guy has 10 awesome ideas and a giant closet full of horrible ideas that you never hear about. Um, It's like... uh, yeah. Mm. We need to fetishize the act of trying, right? Because that's how we get this 
success thing. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting to think about. So I, I guess to, um, to keep going down this, this rabbit hole of knowledge, um, I feel like almost every week we talk about thinking about thinking, <laughs> which I like, uh, which I guess you could say is, is metacognition. But um, how do you filter your information diet or how do you choose where to spend your attention? Like, do you have a system or multiple systems? Oh, this is actually something I've been tinkering with. So I could uh, get super hands-on and practical with like something I've been trying. And then yeah. let me think if there's some overarching things. Um, to be honest, I'm terrible with information consumption. Like I take my phone to the restroom when I'm taking a shit because I'm trying to read something else uh-huh. and, and uh, get another minute of audio in as I'm like working out. So it's something that I'm not great at and I know I could be a lot more present with. Mm-hmm. And so much more, like, like I value gap time. And what is gap time? Uh, gap time is time when your brain is able to just be alone without stimulation and process things. So, um, like boredom. Uh, yeah, like boredom. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm using that phrase because I think uh, it's been used uh, in studies, like about people. Okay people's like mental processing and taking breaks mm-hmm. and stuff. So um, yeah, like information intake. On one hand, I think introducing more gap time is probably like everyone, including myself can use that because it's so easy to be plugged in these days. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm trying to optimize my information intake on the things that I care about and try to be a better curator. So um, almost exclusively, I've been trying to consume my news through Feedly. Mm -hmm. So uh, Feedly is this uh, news aggregator. Um, It became wildly popular when Google News Aggregator like shut down like years ago. And so Feedly was like the big alternative. Now there's a couple other ones like, you know, Reader. But what Feedly forces me to do is uh, I, I create lists for myself and I could create topics like investing, crypto, whatever, right? And then I have to add sources to it. So then I go and find sources and um, it could be like New York Times. It could be Drew's newsletter. I have a whole subsection where I subscribe to Substack newsletters and I'm emptying out my um, actual Gmail so that I just focus my consumption here in Feedly. And that has subtly but powerfully change my relationship with information because now I look forward to popping up Feedly because I know I've controlled all the sources there. Mm-hmm. Like, like I know that I've like went through this whole list and I added a bunch of great uh, academic journals on like brain science and uh, really great finance blogs from writers that I love. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's been more of a, it's brought, back the joy of reading and discovery because it's this curated reading experience now that gives me some semblance of control rather than um, kind of like, uh, I still do this, which is like, you know, I have a shortcut of like, I type, I tap N and then it pops up autofills news combinator, uh, uh, hacker news, mm-hmm. uh, news.ycombinator.com. And then, you know, sometimes I'll still kind of like brainlessly scroll through like the top, um, uh, you know, the top submitted links, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. But overall, I've shifted a lot of my reading to to this curated set uh, from Feedly. Okay. Well, and, and I guess what's interesting is even if you're mindlessly surfing Hacker News, you're surfing something that's already curated, right? Because you're seeing <laughs> what's already yeah. at the top. And then if you're serving, let's say, Oz's curated thinking to your audience, that is also a it sounds so meta like uh curation for my curation <laughs> yeah so people can curate their <laughs> behavior <laughs> yeah there's this um there's this idea and i don't know if it's mine i i feel clever when i invent things that are already invented like i'll come up with an idea and then i'll google it and it's like oh in 1975 bob jones said this and i was like Oh, Bob Jones and I must be brothers or this is some weird quantum <laughs> quantum entanglement. Um, I, I call the idea fractal psychology, right? I didn't so, remember that. Fractal it's psychology. It's because I made it up. Um, <laughs> uh, Boom. Basically, the blog post. just like you have fractals in nature, right? Um, fractals are everywhere. I think we have fractals in our thinking, right? It's like a curation of a curation of a curation of a curation, like these giant Russian nesting doll sets. Because you have Feedly, right? Which is a curation of you saying, hey, I want to get my information from here. But presumably, everything that's going into Feedly is already curated by somebody, right? So-and-so author curates their best thinking to make an article, which you then put into Feedly, right? And then you take all your Feedly content and that makes your written content. And then someone else has your stuff in their Feedly, <laughs> right? And this is just going Everything everywhere. is a remix. <laughs> yes, everything is yeah. a remix, yeah. And um, so still in this idea of filtering your information diet, and I think I'm glad we, we got into that because I think I'm going to come up with maybe some templated questions for all my guests. I think that's a good question. I just like it. Is there anything that you straight up cut out as a rule? So for example, I stopped watching television in probably 2014. Um, I, I watch it now and again, but like I deliberately said like, I'm not going to pay for television. And um, I lived in a place that didn't have a TV. I lived in another place that didn't have a TV. And then I've moved other places where it was up to me, right? Without having roommates, it was up to me whether or not I had a TV. And I just said, you know, my attention's not going to that thing, period. So mm -hmm. that medium is just not available to me. Uh, could be, I don't know cutting off social media or um, do you, do you have anything that you just as a rule say, Nope, not for me. Um, I think you have some stronger boundaries there, which are helpful, mm -hmm. like no TV. Um, I, I basically had no TV ever since I moved into my house like five years ago, but mm -hmm. it wasn't as conscious of a decision as just like my habits were already like tied to my computer anyway. So it was more mm -hmm. of like a decision of, uh, minimalism and removal than like right. oh I, I won't have a tv for this and that reason yeah um but other good rules of thumbs let's see about information diet 
about processing. This is one new heuristic that I like, which is trusting that my brain will figure something out if I just give it some time. And so if I'm stuck on a problem, if I can't get through an article and my normal pattern is to just consume, consume, consume. Like I'll just read all through all the Feedly articles, read, read another uh, book. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, going back to the idea about gap time is, oh, realizing I haven't given myself any gap time for processing this. So let me set some intentional non-consumption time and I will literally physically move myself where uh, that's possible. So I would t- go on a drive. You know, I'm not going to be reading if I'm driving. Right, right. I will walk around. I would, I would take a run. Mm-hmm. So it's basically kind of being a little bit more conscious about the relationship between my body and my mind and right. knowing that, oh, I've been stuck way up to here for too long. I need mm-hmm. to get up, move around. And the hidden benefit is that I sometimes have my best thoughts when I'm running or walking and I'm not having the screen in front of me because screens prime our brains to be task oriented and uh, less so like wildly imaginative. And, and so at least for myself, I know that to be true. So peeling away from the screen to then like purposely being like, oh yeah, my brain's gonna just do some background processing. I'm just gonna let that happen. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that is, I feel really good whenever I do that and I want to do more of. Did you, uh, did you take the learning how to learn course? Have you heard of this? I've heard of it. I've not taken it. Oh man. You got to take it. Uh, it's, it's totally a thing that you would do. You'll like it. It's great. You're describing a thing they talk about in the course. Uh, so there's two types of learning, uh, not types of learning. Um, I would say, uh, types of brain functioning, they call focus mode and diffuse mode. Right. Mm. And so I want to say um, Edison or Einstein, I don't know, Edison or Einstein and also Salvatore Dali are famous for this. Basically, you could say diffuse mode is uh, shower thoughts, something you do while you're running, when you're out of your head, into your body. And um, as far as I know, I want to say Dali would sit at his desk and he would have either his keys. I mix up the examples between the two people, but sit with a set of keys or like a brass ball in their hand, just relax at the desk and kind of jiggle the keys. And then you're in this meditative or trance-like state, really. You're in an altered state of consciousness, not like you're high, but you're in an altered state. And then when the ball hits the ground or the keys hit the ground, smash, it would make a sound. And then they'd wake up and usually they'd have their insight that they needed. Um, mm. So you're deliberately focusing, 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 and then you hit some sort of block and then you go do something else and then boom, the answer comes to you. And so it sounds like you intentionally or not recognize this within yourself. Like, Oh, Hey, I've noticed if I'm beating my head against the wall for two hours and then I go out for a jog. Wow. The answer comes to me during the jog. Hmm. I've stumbled into this focus versus diffuse mode thing. Right. And, and then you just created it for yourself. Yeah. There, there's something magical about that because when I'm in, let's say 
focus mode and I am overly focused like on the screen or tasks in front of me, if, if it goes too long, I start losing my humanity and feeling like a automaton. You know, I, I literally feel like I am digits and like, like not, you know, not fully yeah. present. And yeah. there's something wonderful about like, hey, like I have this brain that I don't know even how much I could unlock. Right. And just trusting myself that things will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a little bit of this meta, like doing versus being. Right. Like so much of my day is like do, do, do. And that's like what comes most easily. But mm-hmm also knowing that I could just be and part of that right. being is just like hey things could process in the background things don't always need my immediate attention and that could be productive too yeah um yeah that that makes sense um let's align with this thinking about thinking thing so perhaps this is a hard fork but um I don't think it is uh Tell me about hypocritical. And, and when I say tell me, like, I know what it is. <laughs> tell, tell the audience what it is. Yeah. So hypocritical is a podcast you could find today. It is defunct because I haven't made an update in over a year. But uh, it's, it's a portmanteau, a combination of two words. One is, you know, a hippie, of course. But then I also want to make a play on words of like being a little bit hypocritical, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where that initial thought came from is, you know, I, f- I found that some hippies that I've talked to uh, or, or self-identified spiritual people who I think of as like, oh, these are some of the most open-minded people, but I've talked to some of them and they are like staunchly religious in their own beliefs too and not necessarily open to what doesn't fit with their mental model. And that's, that's one of the first, uh, that's one of the core inspirations behind the, the word hypocritical. Um, but also I wanted to be like actually critical about things that I found hippie, which is like, oh, you know, I might have easily dismissed something like sound baths or ayahuasca or these things that kind of seem like too woo-woo for me. But have I actually critically thought about it, at least read one article, at least talked to one person or a practitioner about the value of it? And I would say overall, the my takeaway is like, I've always been surprised. Mm-hmm. Like every single conversation I've come away surprised. Um, I don't think I've been like fully converted on a lot of things, but I'm just a lot more open to like, oh, I see how that can work for that person or in certain contexts. So for example, mm-hmm. um, I, I forget a lot of my own work here in Hypocritical, so I'm not sure if I had the tarot episode up, but um, I talked to someone as part of this podcast work who was really into tarot and they brought a completely different mental model to me because I always thought of tarot as like, oh, this person's going to tell me what my life is based on a few cards. Like how arbitrary is that? Like I just really resisted it intellectually. Mm-hmm. But then he flipped it around on me. He said, oh, no, 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 that's not what tarot is about. He said, tarot is when I'm going through the motions of putting these cards down 
and having a conversation with you, it's what comes up for you. It's how you react to what is, what is put down in front of you. And it's, it's a way to generate internal meditation and discussion. So that example was like, you know, he'll show me what all the cards are. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this one resembles death. And this one resembles, right, right. you know, a woman, right? Puts it down, not necessarily telling me what it is. It's just, hey, what, what came up for you? And so now I have a different mental model of like, oh, tarot as tarot as inspired meditation. Like that has like a physical form attached to it. And it's it's not truth. It's not an oracle saying this will happen to you because I pulled mm-hmm. out this card. It means that, you know, you will meet the love of your life or you would fall down a ditch tomorrow. <laughs> it's just like, hey, what's kind of like in your space and energy right now and what comes up for you when I do this for you and that blew my mind I was like okay like I was obviously had only one view of what tarot is and one conversation changed my mind interesting so yeah it's funny because when you said that it reminded me of fortune cookies and part of you can Mm. be aware like okay some person or some group of people just wrote out these pithy sentences and they stuck them in these things and they just went out to the masses. Right. But when you read one or when I read one, I always relate it back to myself. Like you will be lucky. And it was like, Oh, maybe I'll get that job I applied for. Or maybe this thing I was hoping for will actually happen. It's like, well, it's just arbitrary words, (laughs) but everyone interprets it in, in their own way. Um, so I don't know if this is a cognitive bias, but um, when you mentioned hippie critical, I was thinking of this idea of fringe bias. And I may, maybe there's a term, um, there might be one called anti-establishment bias, but basically, um, <laughs> or maybe even you could say bias towards conspiracy theories. Um, it, it's not that all conspiracy theories are right or that they're wrong. I think some people are more susceptible to them than others. Like, let's say uh, you've been really dicked over by some institutions, right? So then you create this mental model or, or bias. Um, so to clarify for just a second here, because uh, I wrote this in the notes, um, sometimes I think of a cognitive bias as a shitty mental model. Right. It's a model Mm. in in that, like, it's a way you could act and it's a stupid one. Um, (laughs) So I like that simplification. Yeah. So this fringe bias or anti-establishment bias amongst a lot of these hippie folk is like, hey, uh, the government is evil. Therefore, this non-governmental thing must be good. And it's like, that's that's a dangerous jump to make. Mm. It's like, look, Mm. maybe... Mm maybe the government or maybe some entity does bad things that doesn't make this fringe thing inherently good. It just means this fringe thing is not that other thing. I completely agree. Like an alternative is just an alternative. An alternative is just an option. Mm -hmm. Like by definition, an alternative is no better or worse than the dominant thing that you're looking at. I do think, uh, uh, things that are alternative to the mainstream have a novelty, like trigger our novelty bias. Sure. So it's like, oh, yeah. this is something like 
new and sexy and maybe maybe better because it's new to me mm-hmm. but um I, th- I think you you really hit the ball out of the park which is that you know that these things can get mixed up and people can create many religions out of, the, out of these things yeah yeah because where i'm fascinated by the idea of hypocritical is that you want to maintain open-mindedness and I guess that happens at the same time as maintaining what I'll call groundedness for lack of a better word. Right. And maybe groundedness is, um, in touch with yourself or in touch with, um, base reality. There's this idea of, uh, tripartite which is just a big word for saying three part three part epistemic so like there's uh as far as i understand the concept third person objective reality second person is relating to others first person is relating to yourself right and so many people mix these up where they're really talking about first person but they speak in third person um I do that all the time. <laughs> and, if, and if we're not self-connected, it's really hard to connect with others. So COVID is a big example, right? Um, people will say COVID is fake or COVID is the most dangerous thing ever. When really what they're saying is I'm not scared or I am scared, right? So instead of owning their shit and doing the first person, I'm scared or I'm not scared, they, they go with this third person. And, and I think on the, the hippie side or, or on the fringe side, um, maybe this fringe bias is taking something that's not mainstream and just weighing it too heavily as being true Mm. because you're not grounded. And I'm not saying all hippies are not grounded, but I think what happens is I was just talking with a friend about this earlier today to circle back to dating a bit infidelity why infidelity can be so terrible is because it forces us to reconstruct how we think of a person so it's literally like a brain scramble right it's like hey i now know that this is not true ah and i don't know if anything is ever true now (laughs) right and the person who committed the infidelity is more connected to base reality right like they have this history, they know what's true and what's false. And then they committed this transgression and the person on the receiving end of the transgression is like, okay, well, well, this part was a lie. Maybe all the other stuff was a lie too. Right. And mm-hmm. I think what happens is when our trust is broken, um, it's, it's fucking weird. I've never said this out loud. I never thought it before this moment, but often if we're on a psychedelic, it can reset our default mode network, right? So let's say we have a mini psychedelic experience or a a miniature psychotic break, right? Where our model of reality is just shattered. Um, And that can happen. When when I say infidelity, I don't just mean human relationships. I mean, an institution, right? An institution fails to keep their promise, backstabs you, etc. And then your model of reality gets shattered and in that state maybe you become somewhat ungrounded 
And we mm. always seek this groundedness, right? So we're, we're putting out these feelers and it's like, hmm, okay, butthole sunning it is, right? <laughs> butthole sunning. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, um, yeah I, I think we, we just have to maintain awareness that we are more susceptible in those moments. Oh, yeah. Just to play bad etymologist, when I think about the word infidelity that you just uh -huh. brought up, um, I think of the word fidelity, like hi-fi sound and lo-fi sound. And like high fidelity is something that is very clear. It's like high mm -hmm. resolution and it's clear and you can see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, I do, I think it might have Latin roots in, in um, faith. So it's like infidelity is like you lack faith. And it's interesting. It's like, is, is it that, you know, truth is like faith that you could see, you know, you could see this person demonstrate their faith and, and, and uh, trust to you. And the moment that becomes unclear, it's like, I can't even see this person anymore. Like, I don't know who, what I'm looking at. It's, it's, uh, it's, it lacks fidelity. It's mm -hmm. infidelity. Yeah. And that fucks with someone's worldview. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this whole meta crisis with fake news and failure of institutions, uh, what that does is remember for the person who is muddying the waters, right? That person knows or has a better idea of base reality than the receiver of the muddiness, right? It's like, if I upload a deep fake video on YouTube, it's like, okay, I've got my audio video clips and I've got the original and I've got this stuff and I splice them together and here's this new one. But you just see this new thing and you're like, oh my God, Tom Cruise said that? That is crazy. Because <laughs> you don't have that awareness, right? Of Oh no, it's just some guy in his garage mixing audio clips. And um, I think that's, it's, it's dangerous. I, I mean, it's, it's really dangerous and I don't know what to do about it. And oh, it's a way people have realized that they can uh, manipulate others and establish power over them. It's just by deliberately muddying the truth and acting based on what you know is true to gain some sort of advantage. It's hard to overcome cognitive biases in light of all this. And like one way I think of cognitive biases, like, like I love how you said, it's mental models that are stupid. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think there is a side of it where I, I really want to honor the origins of mental biases, which I think are, are a lot rooted in the ego and, and egoic survival, right? Like our mm -hmm. brains are primed for short-term reward and gratification because that worked really fucking well for our ancestors. And uh, literally to protect themselves, to maintain status in the group, to survive. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things like then are vestigial characteristics that we carry to the present day. Some of it turns into comedy, some of it turns into tragedy, depending on how right. heavy those right. cognitive biases are. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a recent um, podcast I listened to with Adam Grant, who's, you know, who does a lot of great work about social organizations. Mm -hmm. And he talks about there's like a lot of different ways of being. And he had like a good alliteration said, you know, you might be in trouble when you're in prosecutor, 
politics or preacher mode because there's there's all a little bit of an agenda or you're a little bit too tied to your mission in some way where it's a little bit hard to kind of detach yourself from that way of being. And the alternative that he suggests is, you know, if you find yourself in that mode, you're just trying to like play politics or just trying to like preach and proselytize like your ideas mm -hmm. is to wonder, can I, can I be in scientist mode instead? Which is, okay, this is just an experiment. Uh, my, up, my knowledge can be updated over time. Uh, this is my best version of the truth at this moment based on what I know, but I am open to an even greater truth um, down the line. Um, and, and I think science is one of the best processes and tools that humanity has created. It's like the meta, meta tool that is like so amazing for our society where it's like, oh, wow, you could like test and experiment things. And like, you don't have to just on blind faith, believe in something. That's pretty amazing. And I think our deep evolutionary roots uh, that give us a lot of our cognitive biases and a bias towards short-term thinking, um, we're like on the long journey towards resolving that, towards being more scientific, towards, um, towards like, I guess more like rational thinking. And I'm, I'm kind of going to put like a pin in this point or like some, some uh, take it with a grain of salt because I'm not for hyper-rationalism either. I'm, I, I'm more speaking towards like the humility of like science of like, hey, I'm open to my ideas being changed. Like let's go through a process versus just like, here's what I say, it's the truth. And uh, you know, you'll be ostracized if you don't believe this. You know, it, it feels more fair and democratic. Yeah. Oh man, a, a lot of things to touch on there. I was like, oh, okay, we're we're kind of coming to a close, but that that brought a lot of stuff up. So, uh, there's a book called "Everything Is Fucked" by Mark Manson, and in there he talks about science as, as far as I understand, a self-evolving religion. Right? It is the only religion that improves upon itself. And that makes it very powerful. Also, I think uh, I actually disagree that we're, we're getting better at, at using science for this long-term thinking because in my experience, um, I don't know a lot of people with kids, right? And, and I'm past that stage of like being young to have kids. Like I'm in age, I'm, I'm in the age now where no one would say I'm a young dad if I had kids and I currently have none. Um, and when you have a child, you start thinking about the future, right? And, and I think there's a biological basis for that because it's like, oh shit, my genes replicated. I must make sure they reach sexual maturity so they can replicate again. And some sort of, some sort of shift happens. Um, but yeah, I, I do think I have, I have kind of an ax to grind against not science, but I would say the way many of us use science, um, it's especially with COVID, I saw a lot of weaponized science. It's like, uh, again, going back to instead of saying I'm scared or I'm not scared, it's like, all right, Oz, I'm going to fight you. 
And the way I'm going to fight you is I'm going to send you academic literature showing why masks are dumb. And you're going to send me academic literature showing why masks are mm -hmm. great. So we're using mm -hmm. science as a weapon to promote our ideologies. And uh, there's a good, I guess it's a film and or book called Merchants of Doubt that, um, that, that gets into the weaponization of science. I think pure science is beautiful. It, it, it's curiosity, right? Pure science is beautiful. It's not about outcomes. It's about finding things out right and finding things out is about not knowing the outcome maybe having guesses a, a hypothesis um as as for the adam grant thing it sounds like he took this model which is like somewhat common in in self-help uh some people call it the dra the drama triangle which is uh like rescuer perpetrator victim and then the transformative or healthy side of the model if you will is creator challenger coach so mm. the victim becomes a creator the perpetrator becomes a challenger and then the rescuer becomes a coach now the challenger usually has an agenda um so they might poke and prod but they often want a specific outcome to happen um some people reframe it as tactful challenger. And, and there's other words for this. Some people use, uh, instead of a uh, perpetrator, they would say bully. But um, the coach, and, and this influenced my coaching practice a lot. So I was like, oh shit, the coach is just curious. You know, just asking questions. And I was like, oh, the coach is not wedded to an outcome. Oh, I'm getting this now. And uh, for some reason that, that really clicked for me to, to circle back, I guess, to, to Adam Grant a little bit. Mm -hmm. what, what I understand from you saying your understanding of what he said, that's a real mouthful to say that. <laughs> <laughs> your understanding of his understanding is that once we're wedded to an outcome, we're basically introducing bias, right? Oh, yeah. Outcome uh, you know, the Buddhists would say, right, as far as I understand, a big Buddhist teaching is to care without attachment, right, which is, um, so I want to ask one last question, and um, I'll also answer it myself, but I want to hear your answer first. Um, what is love, or how do you define love? Hmm. I have like a non-answer, but it, it feels like kind of on point for me recently. Okay. Um, I find that love is something that feels very broad. I know I felt it, I've expressed it, and I know I've received mm -hmm. it. Um, what feels more tangible and active to me that I like seeing recently is aliveness. And when I feel a sense of aliveness, it's energy it is um feeling like you know if, if someone says like i love you and i really feel it i think the result is that i feel aliveness i feel this interaction with this person and um so maybe in that circuitous way for me love is 
love is the feeling of aliveness in like the best way possible. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, there's no wrong answer, right? There, there's no wrong answer. I think there's no right answer. I'm damn curious about everyone's answer, <laughs> right? I, I think it's I think it's such a good question. Um, so yeah, I guess how how I define it. Um, so I, I think you and I have similar values probably, and we approach the world in similar ways. Um, I think of light, love the the feeling, right? The emotional experience of it, pretty much exactly like what you said, and then love the behavior. Uh, I, I like this idea of like, oh, love is a verb, right? And um, with with my partner, uh, we commit to loving each other, but we don't commit to being in love with each other because being in love is not something you can commit to. I think it's ephemeral, mm. right? Mm committing to loving is, is like an act of service. And, um, I think of that as genuinely wanting what's best for someone else or yourself, right. In whatever that means to you and wh where that has helped me is it's like, Oh, how can parents love their kids and hurt them? It's simple. What they think of as best for their kid is not what is best for the kid or not what the kid thinks is best for them. Um, so to wrap things up um where can people find you follow you subscribe support you your work that was that was such a great wide-ranging conversation drew so uh my first and last name is like pretty much like where you can find me on everything so you could go to ozchen.com and that's where my newsletter and blog is you know all my content is there and that's oz oz right mm -hmm. okay and why should they subscribe to your blog or what will they find there sell me sell me for a second here yeah i think if people enjoyed this conversation where it it touches on mental models how people think and behavior and uh, all those things but a little bit more focused on the overlap between psychology and money, um, I think they'll find it really interesting. And I'm always evolving, so I'm always experimenting, but I think whatever that I write, I try to have, I, I try to learn by writing. So what that means for me is that I'm doing research. <laughs> I'm doing research on like, what does this mean for my finances? What does this mean for my love life? And then I try to do the work uh, in sharing that out to others so that I distill my knowledge. So I tend to like to have very practical, actionable takeaways that people can try. And in general, I think the most fun life is to uh, be, a, be a guinea pig of things and try on many mm -hmm. things and whatever I find a value to share that with other people. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I, I think in some sense, we're both philosophical, but how I define philosophy is pragmatic right it's like hey if i think of something in a way that influences behavior then that's philosophy to me so it's not just waxing poetic and arguing about hypotheticals um i'm, I'm sure this podcast has stoked a lot of will stoke a lot of thoughts and listeners where it will have some practical implications it is going to be like oh i haven't thought of things like that 
Maybe yeah. I should re- rethink my life and move to the mountains. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> some some uh some nookie nookie for the noggin, as as I like to say. So exactly. All right. Thank you, Drew. It's been a pleasure. Peace. Likewise. This episode is sponsored by the Crypto Curator. You can go to thecryptocurator.com. It is a news curation site providing the best coverage of articles, blogs, podcasts, and videos from crypto industry thought leaders. Again, that is the Crypto Curator. And save time. You don't have to search around the web. Paul McNeil, past guest on the podcast, curates everything for you. Go check out thecryptocurator.com. I hope you all enjoyed that. One quick thing in closing. Stegdrew.com slash juicy. Stegdrew, just like the show, dot com slash juicy. You can sign up for my weekly musings there on all things like we spoke about in this episode and other assorted weirdness. Just drop in your email stegdrew.com slash juicy. Thank you.